Hello and welcome to the Practice Room Podcast, episode 47. This week, we talk about the Wallabies as the international season comes around. They're coming off the back of a big win in Perth over England. Then we look at the test landscape with a big topic about where Australia's at and the big test series between England and India. Then our third topic is we talk about Reese Walsh, who was set to leave the Warriors in a blockbuster move in the NRL. And as always, we finish off with the Bullet Pass round. As always, shout out to Centro for providing that killer intro and introducing my good mate, Blaze McKay. Blaze, a big week in sport. I know you loved your rugby union over the weekend. I was messaging you. I was getting around uh, the Wobblies for once. Um, what, did, what did you make of the weekend of Rugby Union Internationals? Yeah, it was a great weekend. I, I started my Saturday at 11am watching Australia A play Samoa and uh, kept watching then. It was Fiji Tonga. Then uh, the All Blacks played Ireland, and then and then the Wallabies played England. So four Test matches in total, and and yeah, it was a great day. Finished with a great victory for the Wallabies. It was an amazing victory, and we'll get to that in just a second, guys. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, getting really active. Um, the handle is at t underscore practice drill. We're talking about all things NRL, AFL, rugby union, cricket, and NBA basketball. Uh, it's been really fun interacting with a few of you on Twitter, so make sure that you follow us to stay up to date on all those sports. But Blaze, let's get straight into it. And we're starting off, as I said, with the Wallabies, uh, a really strong uh, first test there in Perth, coming up trumps 30-28. to 28. Score kind of got out of control there at the end for England. Australia held a double-digit lead there going into the final 10 minutes, and then uh, England just kind of got a couple of late tries to make it, you know, only a two-point loss, but a really good second half, especially from the Wallabies. Yeah, pretty incredible performance from the Wallabies when you consider everything that went wrong for them. Obviously, you know, they lost Quade Cooper in the warm-up, um, a huge player for them, obviously fly huge half, loss. so maybe yeah. the most important player on the park. Noah Alessio had to stand up and, and start 10. James O'Connor was actually in the stands, um, had his formal kit on. Had to come down into the change room and quickly get changed to come onto the bench. Then um, Tom Banks broke his arm. That was a pretty shocking injury. So he'll be, you know, out for the series. Then Alan Alatoa failed his HIA. And then to finish the half, Darcy Swain got a red card. So Australia in the first half really struggled to get any sort of momentum. They, they were quite ill-disciplined. I don't know if that was, I guess, a consequence of their, you know, disrupted kind of build up but you know it allowed England to I guess dominate and and play with quite a lot of ball and 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 really up the tempo and play a a little bit more footy than they would usually um do but I guess they went into halftime six all and and I think the Wallabies would have been pretty happy with that considering everything that happened I think you're 100 right of course you're going to be happy with that but you know England did dominate the first half but I think it was uh you know a plethora of things that played a role like the things you just touched upon like Banks broke his arm in the first half you had Quade Cooper go down in the warm-up. So when they've been in camp, they've had Quade there at the 10. To lose that just, you know, um, you know, minutes out from the game is huge. And to make all those adjustments, as you said, James O'Connor have to come down onto the bench. You know, that's a lot of things to go against the Wallabies before, you know, the games even started. And, you know, the first half they were trying to feel one another out, you know, just get a sense of what they're bringing to the table. And, you know, once the Wallabies sort of gelled and had that first 40 minutes to, to you know, obviously they know one another, but get to know one another underneath, you know, test match pressure, seemed like they just built really well and were able to, to really put a good show on in the second half. 
even though, like you said, six or the half time, and then England came out and scored nine minutes into the second half, but they just absolutely ran away within the last 30 minutes. Yeah, definitely. I think it was probably a confidence factor. You know, the later the game got, the more Australia trusted themselves to play with 14 men, and I guess the more confidence allowed them to open the game up a little bit. I thought Samu Karevi in the second half started wow. to, yep. you know, interplay a little bit more with the backs and forwards. In the first half, he was used as, as mainly, you know, a crash and bash sort of operator, and he was doing a really good job at getting over the game line, but it, it meant the game was quite, you know, tight. But in the second half, he used his skills a little bit more and got the ball out. We saw that try for Jordi Pattaya out wide where they had a nice pull pull back from the forwards to the backs and then spread the ball nicely to the wings and, and Jordi Pattaya got over on the edge. You spoke about the Wallabies having to play with 14 men. It was something that I kind of skimmed over when recapping the first half, but it's probably the biggest moment of the first half, the red card to Darcy Swain. Just talk us through. It was, you know, in a mall bit of hair pulling happened and then he kind of carried on with it a little bit later in the act what, what did you make of all of that as a Wallabies fan yeah I think there definitely was a bit of uh, provocation there from Johnny Hill but I think it's one of those moments where I think it was just a bit of a brain fade for Darcy Swain yeah. I think you could even see walking off the field he was a bit bewildered probably one of those ones where you know in the heat of the moment he, he just got a bit carried away and yeah, unfortunately, you know, he'll be out for the rest of the series, uh, suspended for two weeks. And I think a red card is such a huge, you know, huge loss in, in any sport. And, and unfortunately, it's become a bit more common in rugby union as they become quite strict on, you know, the high tackles. But this one, definitely foul play. Yeah, definitely a red card. But as you say, Australia did really well to adjust, particularly in the forwards. Darcy Swain also was, was calling the line out. So they had to make a little change there. With Cade Neville, who was on debut, shifted to call the lineouts and, and actually had a really good game. Maybe Queensland could learn a thing or two at uh, how to adjust when you go down a man because the Wallabies, that was just unbelievable. And, and we'll get on to the second half now. You know, we've got it written down here. The game just opened up, and that's probably an, an understatement for the last 30 minutes. Um, as you said, a, a little bit more uh, connection between the backs and the forwards. And then it was that the the key was probably the bench once they started rolling in. How, how do you think the bench for you um, played in, in the second half? Yeah, I think more and more as the game, you know, progresses and advances, it's becoming a real 23-man effort. Um, I think a lot of teams, you know, England have, have started actually calling their bench finishers rather than bench players just to, you know, get those guys in that mindset that they play a really important role. And yeah. I think Australia's forwards in particular off the bench played a really huge impact obviously with the red card it meant that the starting forwards had to you know use a bit more energy in the first 50 minutes and then guys like Pete Samu and, and Falau Fainga who both got over for late tries were huge I think Pete Samu I love what he brings off the bench he's he's a real agile player I think a bit in the mold of maybe an Artie Sevilla type real aggressive in contact and, and always pumping his legs and, and getting those post-contact meters and it showed when he scored that try, you know, he put a bit of late footwork on, got through the line and then powered over. So, yeah, those forwards were, were incredible and, and that, I think, was ultimately what won Australia the game. So, obviously, they were, as you said, the finishers for the game, but those players that played the full 80 minutes, the, those key players for Australia, who were they for you? Yeah, I think we touched on Samu Karevi earlier. He, he was essential, obviously, coming back into the team, playing in Japan for his club rugby this year. He... You know, 
had a lot of crash balls in the first half and, and got over the game line. And then, you know, as we said, the second half showed his array of skills. Even, you know, he put in a few nice kicks, which I think is an, an upgrade to his skills maybe. You know, that time away in Japan has been really beneficial for him. But I think Michael Hooper, again, was pretty outstanding. Um, he won two really crucial turnovers um, right on, you know, Australia were defending right on their line and, and he managed to steal the ball and, and will win two penalties there in the second half. So he's a guy that, you know, leads from the front always and, and I think, you know, when it, when the Wallabies haven't been very good and, and now we're starting to improve, he's still probably our best player, I'd say. So the skipper lifting, going the big lift for the nation um, but he'll need to do it again come game two, which is in Brisbane this Saturday. Um, we were talking about it just before we you know, started the podcast today, is Suncorp's become a little bit of a fortress for the Wallabies over the last you know, 10 years. Do you think that continues? And do you think the, the Wallabies kind of round out the series and, and go up 2-0? Yeah, I definitely hope so. It'd be great for them to go up 2-0 and seal the series there, I think. I don't know what it is about Queensland. Um, you know, I guess something you'd in the say water, mate. Something, something in the water, water up there, but they really get behind the Wallabies. And yeah, I think what we'll see is probably two improved sides. I think England will will be pretty uh, unhappy with their performance in Game One, and and they'll come out really firing. But I think the Australians also have some room to improve. So I think both teams will will definitely put out a, a better performance than they did in Game One, and and it should be you know a real blockbuster. I think SunCorp's a great stadium, and you know as you say, the people in Brisbane always get behind their sports. So yeah, hopefully it's a great game, and and hopefully Australia come down to Sydney with the with the series already sealed. Can't wait for that one. But let's move on to the world of Test cricket now. It's so interesting, and I think the best thing that the International Cricket Committee have done is bring in the world test championship it just means that test matches have more importance than just the series that we're that we're watching whether it's the ashes whether it's india against england which we'll get into sri lanka against pakistan like every series every game has external impact and that's what i think is really good about it um obviously you know we're in the middle of a cycle which goes from 2021 to 2023 Look, it's no surprise, but the number one team are the Aussies. Um, six wins, zero losses, of course, um, just the three draws. So they sit atop it. Um, it. It's a weird way. I won't dive into how it, how the point scoring and the percentages work, but you know we're, we're, we're about 6% above South Africa, and the percentage basically just levels the, out the playing field for you know how many test matches. Because you know, England, for example, have played heaps of test matches what have they played 11 16 test matches you know and have only won five of them um which just shows you how good they are um but you know it just means that over these three years every game matters and and we get to see um evenly who is the best side um with new zealand being the inaugural winners a couple of years ago but blaze um Australia coming fresh off a 10-wicket win by Sri Lanka, only, only needing to t- chase 10 runs there in the uh, second innings um, to, to win the Test match. What do you make of the Aussies at the moment? It's obviously not too much of a challenge without trying to be you know cocky, but it's, it's one of those series that is really good to just test how we can go in the subcontinent and, and move forward from there. Yeah, definitely. As you say, Sri Lanka, a little bit of a weaker nation at the moment. But, you know, we spoke, I think it was last week, about cricket at the moment. The real test is playing overseas. So 
it is definitely a good sign for Australia and, and particularly, I guess, their spinning options. I think it was Travis Head actually took a four for in, in the second yep. innings. And, and, you know, the batsmen are doing a good job over there. I think Uzi Kwar just scored some runs. Cam Green scored some runs. Yeah. And I think Alex Carey might have uh, done a right as well. So, as you say, it's good to, you know, always good to do well in the subcontinent, a place that we've traditionally struggled. And, yep. you know, success overseas is a real... I guess, good sign in, in the cricketing world at this stage? Well, I think you just touched upon a Cam Green, you know, definitely a big part of Australia's future, being that, you know, gun all-rounder that's only going to grow to be a better cricketer over the next few years. Scored his maiden test century during the Ashes. at the um, It might have been the last test. But um, since then, now he's gone over to Sri Lanka and scored 77 um, so his confidence is definitely not low. He's he's playing really, really well and excited to see what he can do in the second and final test against Sri Lanka. Um, I think it starts on the weekend. Um, but Blaze, the main series that we want to talk about is England and India. Um, England beat India by seven wickets, um, chased down a huge score of 378 in the last innings. Root and... Uh, Bairstow were amazing, 142 and 114, respectively. Um, it still places them, however, still low down, considering, as I said, they've only won five games, lost seven, and drawn four. So they do sit seventh on the uh, uh, the World Test Cricket Championship ladder. Um, but they obviously had to change a lot. New captain, new coach, new system. Um, how do you think they've gone in their first few test matches? Obviously swept New Zealand and now 1-1 in that small test series against India. Yeah, I think they've been really impressive. Um, four from four, you can't ask for much more. And some really good you know, run chases. Um, we're going to get into it a little bit, but they've been chasing in the fourth innings. And, and I think what failed for them a lot in the last kind of 12 to 18 months has been their batting. So it's been really impressive to see them scoring runs and... Obviously, Joe Root's been pretty incredible again, but it's really good to see Johnny Bairstow in the runs, and I think that's been the key for them is is finding someone else that can help out Joe Root. I think their openers have, have done a lot better as well. Obviously, Zach Crawley, he played a little bit in the Ashes and looked like quite a good player. Um, so, yeah, that, that those two opening spots and then finding someone else to support Joe Root has been, I guess, a really positive sign for them. Absolutely huge, Johnny Bairstow, and I guess it all... This kind of form that he's been in kind of started at the at the back end of of the series in the Ashes, especially. I think it was at the SCG he scored he scored a ton, um, and since then he's just been you know growing in confidence. We've always known he had the potential, but he's been like in and out of that English side and and been more of a, a one day kind of player. Um, so you know, uh, hats off to him. He's he's playing very well. I actually saw somewhere that you know over the last might have been like. 25 days or something he scored more runs than um virat Kohli has in the last year and a half in test cricket so obviously dominating johnny bairstow um so you know good luck to him um also just to give some context to this series um because i've, I've seen some people even i was confused talking to you um about how small this test series was but it's actually continuing on from one from last year that was affected due to covid um, I think it was the Indian team that got, um, you know, some some staff um, infected by COVID, and and that basically had to cancel those last two Test matches over there in the UK. But they've been able to come back, which is credit to India, really. You know, I, I wasn't expecting them to do that, but they've they've come back, and you know, they drew 
the smaller series. And overall, they drew as well because it was match drawn. I think India, England, India, England basically is the way it went. So, um, you know, well done to India. Um, but Blaze, you said it just before. We touched upon it. We'll give the number again. England chased down 378 in the last in- innings. It's the largest total that England have ever chased down in Test cricket. It's quite an impressive total overall anyway. Um, but it asked the question, what is a good lead to have going into the fourth innings if you're bowling? Now, you know, so- some teams declare at a certain total, you know, England bowled India out with them holding this lead, but they were able to chase it down with a day and a half. So I ask you, What's a good lead to have, in your opinion? Yeah, obviously there's so many factors, as you say, uh, you know, whether you get bowled out or whether you're in a position to declare. But for me, I always have that number of 250. If you can get over 250 run lead in, in your going into the fourth innings, I think you can be pretty confident as a batting lineup. Um, having said that, I think we've seen over the last kind of five or ten years, declarations and attacking declarations in particular in that third innings have become less and less just because I guess teams are worried about declaring and then losing. But for me, I always have, yeah, if you can be leading by over 250, I just think that, you know, mentally is a, is a very tough test. And, and I think some of the stats, you know, in history maybe back that up. Um, yeah, so I think if you can get it up to 300, you're, you're pretty much a safe bet. But for me, 250 is always, always a challenging score. Yeah, for me, it's that 300 plus, um, to be honest. I, I, I think... Look, a lot of factors come into it. It comes down to, you know, just to give a few f- factors, where are you playing, what's the pitch doing, you know, your team and the opposition. Um, you know, we saw India chase down, you know, some pretty comfortable um, leads that the Aussies had when they were last over here. But that came down to Australia not really bowling well, so there's another factor. Um, and then time. Time, I believe, is the biggest one that really determines how many runs you want to leave on the table for the other team to chase down. So for me... 300 is the right number, um, especially with the situation that um, India had of having a 300-plus lead with a day and a half for England to chase it down. And, you know, they got off to the perfect start, having a 100-run opening partnership. And then, as we touched upon before, Root and Bairstow went on with the job and, and got it done. But, you know, sometimes I think, you know, yeah, you can read into some stats and history might point towards what you're saying. You know, it has to be around that 250 mark. That'll help. For me, I'm all about if if you if it's in your control to get that lead, got to be 300 plus because that is defendable. Um, and India let it slip here. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, we've got, we've got some stats here. In the 2010, the average runs to wicket ratio in the fourth innings is 27. So obviously, that'd get you a score about 270. So somewhere just in between our two numbers there. But then for innings one to three, it's 34. So obviously that shows, you know, batting's a bit easier at the start of the test. That's pretty obvious. But a really interesting one for me was, you know, chasing 250 to win. You, you probably only win every one in five test matches. And then chasing 300, you probably only win one in 10. So it's definitely a tough thing. And, and as you said, time is a huge factor and when you break it down you know we were talking about it earlier if you have a day and a half you probably have 120 130 overs maybe you might only need two and over but on paper it looks so easy but obviously history has shown that you know it's not that easy but it is interesting you know we we're talking about this english side and in the last four tests they have batted in the fourth innings and they've successfully chased 
378, 296, 299, and 279, and all pretty easily with a lot of wickets in hand. So I think maybe it is showing a bit of a changing of the guard, you know, as as white ball cricket becomes more of a factor and, and guys like, you know, Rishabh Pant for India or, or Ben Stokes, Johnny Bairstow for England, those guys that really are willing to take the game on even late in a test match, you know, maybe these chases in the fourth innings are going to become bigger and I think it is becoming more exciting. You know, there was a time there where if you were batting fourth, you probably were going to lose the test match and I think that still is largely the case. But the more we can have test matches going into this fourth innings and having close finishes on the last day, I think it's really good. And I think the most memorable test matches are always the ones where it comes down to the fourth innings, whether you win or lose, you know, they're, they're the ones that you remember. And yeah, just to go back to your previous stat where you were talking about, you know, chasing down 250, one in five chance of, of chasing that down. You know, if I'm a bowling side, yes, one in five is good. It's a, you know, 20%. But like, I'm taking, everyone's taking 10%. Like if, you know, one in 10 chase down that 300. Um, so that's why I think you've got to get that 300 plus to the point that you made about uh, about limited over cricket really starting to, to creep its way into test cricket. I'm not complaining about it. That's fine. Like that's just the way that any sport goes. You know, rules and different variables affect the way that the sport evolves over time. But my main thing is, and I dare say, England with those four chases, where the test match has been played in England, they're used to those conditions. What I'd like to see if they were given those kind of totals to chase down in Australia, in South Africa, um, you know, I don't think you'd ever see India's a lead a like that. Beast. Yeah, <laughs> India's a different beast. You're 100% right. You know, I'm all looking at those kind of dry surfaces where the ball might not move around as much at the end of the test match, but there are some cracks on the show on the pitch, and that's what I'd like to see against you know, like Australia, yeah, would they still I'd have love to intent, say, yeah. wouldn't let a lead like that slip against England. Um, I mean, we rolled them in the ashes. But again, you know, would Australia chase down those totals in England? I wouldn't think so. So I, I, I dare say it comes down to a little bit of a home ground advantage in those type of uh, situations. But look, I think it opens, as I said, this, this run that England have been on with, uh, you know, McCullum at the helm has been you know, entertaining. And you think about the way that Brendan McCullum played his cricket, confident, get on top of the bowler kind of stuff, but also smart at times to to, to pull it back and just make sure knowing I'm the pivotal guy here. And I think Joe Root in particular, along with Bairstow, have done that the best out of all the English batsmen. Hate to say it, because obviously, you know, we're not here to blow wind up the, up the palms. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, they're just playing smart cricket at the moment against some respectable sides. But, Anyway, it's uh, you know, it comes down to the team that's bowling in the third innings to make sure that they have a total that they can defend. Sometimes it's out of your control, but if if you were India coming into that fifth test and you say we'll give you a three hundred and seventy-eight run lead, would you take it? You'd go um yeah, and he's like got a day and a half. Yeah, that's fine, and they lost it. So that's full credit to England. Yeah, definitely, and I think that's one of the beauties of Test cricket. As we keep saying, there's so many factors involved, but and there's also so many numbers and stats out there, and some people might say, well, we're using all these stats and some of them are pointless, but I think that's part of the fun of, of Test cricket. There's a lot of numbers out there, and, and it is fun to, I guess, look into different things and, and see any trends that are, that are occurring or, 
you know, any things that, that might influence the result, I guess. Well, great topic there, but we'll move on to, you know, a smaller one, but still, you know, quite immense in, in the landscape of the sport. Reese Walsh set to leave the New Zealand Warriors. Um, just, just your initial thoughts before I dive into the information. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy month. Obviously, there were some rumours maybe six weeks ago that this was going to happen, and then he kind of came out and said he was going to go back to the Warriors and, and that he's really loving his time there. And then, obviously, there's some some extra, I think, external things that are, that are going on in his life. And it's obviously disappointing for the Warriors. Obviously, they've lost their coach, and, and this might have been the third or fourth player now that they've lost, I guess, as they're moving back to New Zealand. Um Obviously, there's two sides of the argument, and and you can see, I guess, both perspectives in terms of, you know, respecting the contract that you've signed. Obviously, it's a New Zealand club. They were always going to move back there. But then, obviously, the personal side and and whatever he's got going on in his life, I, I think underlying it for me is probably the underlying issue for the Warriors is when you rely on Australian systems and Australian players, you, you are always going to have issues like this coming up and it probably again highlights that they need to maybe focus a bit more on their domestic programs to to develop some more Kiwi players coming through and obviously that's very difficult in New Zealand with the dominance of rugby union but also you know the clubs over here coming and taking some of their talent but it, it again shows that yeah maybe they need to build, put a bit more focus on their domestic programs and maybe this chance you know moving back to New Zealand they've obviously got a bit of attention on them at the moment and people are really supporting them maybe this is the chance for them to to really you know stake their claim in in that area yeah I guess um before we get into the Reese Walsh stuff just to go go off the back of what you just said I think you're 100% right it comes down to the Warriors finding a way to to build up a almost a respect within the the country you know we all know unions the number one thing and i don't think rugby league are trying to compete with it and if they are that's stupid it should just be about trying to trying to find a niche like there's there's uh, rugby league's a bigger sport than rugby union in australia but yet there are still you know the wallabies are doing well and you know you would know going to um, a private school that that's the main sport that gets played there so there is a you know a love and respect for the sport and they just need to find that balance over there and then said I, I I want to say like what might change it outside of focusing on the you know the local domestic competitions is getting a Maori like top caliber player in the league to come over they had Roger Tuivasa Sheck there right but I think they need a couple guys. I, I think, you know, it would be so good if the Warriors were able, and this is just ifs and buts, really, but if they were able to land, like, a Joey Manu to come over. Like, he ripped it for New Zealand. And I think New Zealand are going to be a big chance of winning the World Cup. And maybe that's a thing that's going to help them. People go, oh, I want to represent the Kiwis. You know, if maybe the All Blacks is just a little bit out of reach and, you know, try and make the, the cross-code jump. But I think that might be the thing to get him and then that might hold people in the pathways. Whereas if you're in the New Zealand pathway now, you're going, who do they have? Sean Johnson's at the end of his career. You know, Reese Walsh just jumped ship. Like, like why would I go to this club? Why wouldn't I listen to the Cowboys or the Broncos when they're saying, come over here, mate. Look at us. We're a top four side. I think it comes down to those kind of things. Um, and obviously it doesn't, doesn't help that they're not, you know, contending or even contending for the eight um, the last few years. But obviously... So many variables and, and having to live out of Queensland for the last few years doesn't help. But to the topic of Reese Walsh, 
Um, he's been granted permission to negotiate with Brisbane-based clubs for 2023. And I say Brisbane-based because there is all an indication that he wants to return to Red Hill and the Broncos, um, where you know he was initially poached um, from by the Warriors. But you'd have to say the Dolphins want him, they need him, and I don't think they would just let him wander back to the Crosstown rivals, especially with you know their inaugural season, you know, just on the horizon. Yeah, definitely. I think we're seeing more and more that the, the Dolphins are really need need a big player, and Reese Walsh would be a big player, but more and more they're struggling to get those guys. I think just because of there's the unknown. We've spoken about it before, but obviously Brisbane, you know, there there were a few. I guess issues maybe that there might be a bit of tension there because obviously there were the issues around him not being in their top 30 and then he let them go but obviously I think he's pretty keen to get back there and, and the Broncos also this season as you say when when results are going your way players are more likely to go there and I think the Broncos yeah. are, are building a really nice I guess resume to say hey look we're, we're a building time side we've got a lot of young guys and, and we've put some good results on the park this year and that's going to attract players as well. So he might be on about a 450 contract um, and, you know, I have seen some people going, well, how are they going to afford this? Broncos have a lot of players leaving um, at the end of this year, which is going to free up a lot of cap to sign him and then the rest of the 30 roster spots fill in with youngsters from the region, hopefully not from New Zealand, leave them over there for the Warriors. Um, but yeah, you'd have to guess that the, the Dolphins would probably put in a late bid for him. Um, but I guess not only are people furious that, you know, there's another Warriors player leaving after, you know, Matt Lodge and, and the coach that you spoke about just before, but it's another player wanting out from their contract. But personally, and I, and I tweeted about this last night on, on the practice drill at town, to score practice drill, um, is you've got to take into account the players' situations. You know, although these guys are superstars and in society and, and well-known in, in many households, at the end of the day, Reese Walsh is a 19-year-old. Like, he's still a person. Um, Reese Walsh's situation is, you know, he does have a, a young kid. So, um, you know, that's immediate family. That's someone who he needs to be with, and rightfully so. And, and if, you know, his family and, and the child can't get over to New Zealand, then I think I think he should be allowed on personal grounds, which is what the Warriors have, have granted, is for him to go back to, to Brisbane. Um, uh, but I do, and you spoke about this six weeks ago, there were these rumors and you'd have to say it was probably six weeks ago that he may have asked to be granted uh, release because, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And now that apparently Chance, Nickel Klukstar came across the table, they've gone, okay, here's the guy. We can get him to play at fullback and then we can let Reese go because if New Zealand officials have come out and said that they weren't going to let him go until they got someone to fill that spot. They might not want to make it super public about what's going on behind closed doors, but look, they are, you know, they get the man they wanted. Chance is an absolute um, throbo, someone who, uh, you know, hangs around the Raiders. He is one of the nicest guys um, that I've I've met really nice personable you know get along with him really nicely and he's always you know i'm just an intern and he always you know says hi to me and, and wants to have a chat so a really nice guy and i think that'll be a great person for the warriors to sign um and, and a great person to fill their spot because we know what his potential is it's just been a, a few years of injury has, has kind of hindered that um anything to add on to the back of that point 
Yeah, and I guess the key the key point about him is you spoke about it earlier. Obviously, the Kiwi connection and yeah, someone who who has that really strong cultural connection to the Warriors and and, and as we've said a few times with them, I think they have the potential to to develop a, a really strong cultural basis at their club. Obviously, we've seen in the recent weeks with how how strong support was for the Kiwis in their Test match, and we've seen with the Indigenous All Stars and, and Maori game that. You know, when you, I guess, use that, you can use that cultural connection and, and to your strength. I, I And I think the Warriors would be really smart to make a move like that. Or, as you say, someone like Joey Manu. That might be a bit of a, you know, dream situation at this stage. But, um, yeah, I think they'd be really smart to, to look at those guys who are obviously great leaders and, and great people, as you said, to really, you know, build a foundation at their club. Well, we'll move on to the bullet pass round now. Um, and, you know, I had my initial question here. I'm going to ditch it, and we're going to stay on the topic of the Warriors. They obviously made their return to Mount Smart Stadium. Um, it was actually pretty emotional, like, seeing, you know, I guess the Warriors has been arguably the smallest market team in, in the NRL that probably doesn't have the biggest fan base here in Australia that we get to see. Um, it was just incredible to think that they spent a couple of years away and there's all these people who are willing to sell out Mount Smart to come and watch them play. Well, what did you think of, of the spectacle? Not the game, but like the, the atmosphere and the spectacle of them even just walking out of the out of the tunnel. Yeah, pretty incredible. I think, you know, in New Zealand, there's a huge appetite for, for sport and rugby, rugby in particular, and, and they have been starved of that, obviously, the last few years. So it was pretty incredible to see I guess that packed out stadium, we saw it as well the week before with the internationals. And, and as I think it is a really positive sign for the Warriors because it shows that there's an appetite for, for the Warriors. And, you know, they put out a pretty good performance against, obviously, the Tigers, who are another struggling club. But, but they got a win, and, and it was reasonably convincing. So I think that's a real positive start for them, and, and hopefully they can build on it, you know, finish off this season and then into the next season. Uh, we'll move over to tennis, a little bit different, but obviously, wow. you know, we cover everything on the practice drill. Nick Kyrgios is, is through to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. I think he's playing tonight. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on the King, and do you think he can go all the way? Oh, he can go all the way, mate. He can go all the way. Um, I've never seen a player in any sport have so much off-court speculation and drama. I mean, um, you know, I was watching the game here with my uh, girlfriend and, you know, we were just saying how calm he looked. You know, this is not the Nikuros that they, they drum him up to be and uh, lo and behold goes into the press conference and has an all-time shocker. Um, you know, but uh, look, I actually think talking about his on-court um, play, unbelievable. Um, he's, he's literally, he's got to be one of the most talented tennis players of this generation, and I mean that over Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, but what he doesn't do is he doesn't help with not wanting to get coached, not wanting to put in the amount of time that these greats have. So he'll never surpass them, and we've all, we all know that. But if he can get that one Grand Slam win, Wimbledon, I listen to this, I'm going out on the limb, um, shout out to Dad, because I said this to him last night, if Nick Kyrgios wins Wimbledon, it will be the greatest Australian sporting story in the last 20 years, give me one that's bigger, give me one that's bigger, we always win gold medals in swimming at the Olympics, so it can't go back to the you know, Sydney Olympics you know, 22 years ago, it's Nick Kyrgios, if he can win Wimbledon, because 
on his path, he'll have Nadal and probably Djokovic in the final. If he can beat two of the all-time greats to secure, you know, um, Australian men's tennis first Wimbledon championship in 20 years, I think uh, I think it'll be hard to beat. And especially just all of just his, you need some narrative around it, and and the narrative is, you know, the nation is so divided on this, you know, unbelievable athlete. So you know, he labelled himself as the. Uh, as the Dennis Rodman of tennis. Um, actually saw Giannis labelled him that as well. So let's see if he can uh, be a champ like Dennis Rodman. Um, just a quick one. Our Swans have lost another unlosable, unlosable game. When is enough enough? Yeah, I don't know. The Swans, again, up and down season. Obviously started really strongly. And, you know, I'd have to say yours truly got pretty high on them and thought they were going all the way <laughs> after about two or three games. You... My co-host was trying to tell me they do this every year, and he was every trying year. to. He was keeping himself contained on the other side of the desk, but yeah, again, it's one that they should win. We spoke about it last week that the Essendon game would have been one that they circled as a must-win, and they lost. Obviously, it was a very close game, and and they were in it right till the end. But now it kind of puts their season. You know, a bit of a in the balance. Like it's the seven games to go. They're playing the Bulldogs this week, who are one win behind them. So it's a big game. You know, you lose this week, you're you're essentially out of the eight. And yeah, if they were to miss the finals, it would be, you know, a bit of a failure for the season. So seven games to go. I don't know. They've just got to find a way to to get some consistency. I think we all know when they're when they're at their best, they they can match it with the top teams. We've we've seen that this year and. Yeah, they've just got to find a way to, to be a little bit more consistent heading into the end of the season. What have you got for me? What's the last question? Well, we'll finish off with some basketball. Obviously, there's been some more drama at the Nets uh, this week. It looks like, obviously, Irving's going to stay, but then it came out that, that KD's requested a trade. Um, you know, while it looks likely that he will start, at least start the season with the Nets due, I guess, to the size and length of his remaining contract... I guess, obviously, it's only early. There's still a lot of time to go before the season starts and, and before the playoffs. Obviously, they just finished. But, you know, at this point, with all the drama going on, do you think the Nets can still have a successful season? I mean, if you have a look at the roster they have, because obviously, you know, Irving's still out there to be traded. Um, you know, KD as well. You have a look at their team, it's stacked. Um, you know, even our, our boy Ben Simmons, Paddy Mills is still there as well. Um on paper, the team's great, but I think, it, it, like any sporting team, it does come down to how you can duck yourself off the field and, and the camaraderie within the team. And I just, I just can't see how a team can gel knowing that at any any second, you know, your two superstars will be traded and they've both wanted out of the of the uh, of the franchise. So, look to me, I'm going to say no. I don't think they'll have a successful season. Um, they definitely won't win the championship. Um, they may make the playoffs if they keep everyone together. I think I think you can almost guarantee that. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think both of them will leave at some point. I think you might see Westbrook um, come to Brooklyn in a trade for, for Kyrie if they can get the right package together. And, and I think uh, if I had to guess, um, I'd have to say KD probably goes to the Heat. But, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not really sure. 
Um, but anyway, that will do us for another episode of the practice drill. Our next one will be the State of Origin Game 3 um, preview. Going to be really exciting. Got Luke and Sean joining us once again. That'll be next Tuesday. Um, Blaze, in the next week of sport, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think, again, I'm pretty boring over the next month. It's going to be Rugby Union. Um, I was waiting for you to bring up Origin because, you, you know, you've got the jumper on and, and I know you've been counting down the days since, I guess, the minutes... Uh, State of Origin 2 finished and, and yeah it's going to be a big week ahead and, and this time next week I guess we'll be on Decider Day we've drilled Origin into the ground on this podcast so I thought we'll give, we'll give the listen, listeners a break of me trying to defend Queensland and uh, and yeah we'll uh, we'll get back to it next week but guys if you'd like to stay up to date with all things NRL, AFL, Rugby Union Cricket and NBA Basketball go and follow us on Twitter at T underscore Practice Drill stay up to date and uh, we'll see you all next week see ya